Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When we first become parents, there are tons of books and advice for us to follow in the baby years and even the toddler years. As our kids age, however, it seems that all of these parenting experts start to fade away. They don't dare touch the older children until perhaps the teenage years. Yet our tweens, that delicate age around 8 to 13, is crucial to how we'll face the teenage years with our children. The challenges that can come with this age can set the stage for how we will approach potentially even more tumultuous times in adolescence, but many parents feel lost at sea as they face these years. This week I had the joy of talking to Sarah Ockwell-Smith, who many of you will know for her work in infancy and toddlerhood, but who has filled the much-needed gap for us parents of tweens with her new book, Between. From connection with our tweens, to anxiety, to social activism, we delved into some of the key areas that parents need to be aware of when it comes to parenting tweens. And as always, it comes with the humor and honesty that Sarah brings to everything she does. I am so thrilled to have with me today the wonderful Sarah Ockwell-Smith. And if for some bizarre reason you actually do not know who she is, which I highly doubt, she is a well-known parenting expert, a highly regarded popular childcare author who specializes in the psychology and science of parenting, gentle parenting, and attachment theory. Sarah runs various workshops and webinars for families, as well as offering one-on-one support to families via email. She's authored 11 parenting books that have been translated into over 30 languages, including the best-selling The Gentle Sleep Book, which has sold over 100,000 copies in the UK alone. Her newest book and topic for today, Between, takes her away from the younger years and brings us right into those times that are often forgotten in the parenting world. Sarah is the mother of four teenagers, three boys and one girl, and she lives with her family, rescue dog, cats and chickens in a 350-year-old cottage in Essex, England. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That <laughs> makes me sound amazing and I'm like, no, it's... <laughs> It's but really you are. I see when anybody introduces me, <laughs> like I don't know this person. <laughs> well, you—it is amazing because what you've done is amazing. So, I mean, hopefully, you can. I, I know that whole imposter syndrome. We all have it. We've all talked about it. We know this, but um, but it's it is not earned. Like you have earned all these accolades here. So, it is wonderful, and I'm excited to talk about these tween years. I am knee deep in them. So it was uh, quite relevant to see someone actually go there. But before we get to that, because we will, obviously, about a lot, how did you get into how this whole parenting help business, first of all? And then how did you end up veering away to go towards teens? Because you didn't start doing this. You started, if I have it right, in pharmaceuticals? Yeah, so no, I... I studied psychology at university and on a gap year to go back to do my master's I got sucked into the um, clinical research industry mostly because they paid a lot of um, once you join you can never leave like Hotel California Um, so yeah no for five years I worked on clinical research in mostly in oncology Um, and then I got pregnant with my first baby and that's kind of what started everything because I had a truly horrific birth Um, It was a planned home birth that all went wrong and I had horrible birth trauma. And then I spent the next sort of two or three years, I didn't go back to work, I stayed at home with him. And I spent the next two or three years, I think, trying to sort myself out. Um, So I have four kids who were all born within four years of each other. So I literally had a baby, then a baby, then a baby, then a baby. And I (laughs) did all this research to try and have a better birth. 
Um, and my second birth was also horrific um, for different reasons. But then when I had baby number three, it was at the very, very start of hypnobirthing in 2004. Like there were probably 100 people in the whole world who had heard of it. And I found that and it, I had an amazing birth that kind of healed a lot of trauma back in early 2005, which sort of triggered me to I, I, I felt with pharmaceuticals that it wasn't fulfilling me. It felt like there was, you know, I was earning a lot of money and I had a great career, but there was something missing. There was something like in my soul missing. And I just felt this huge calling to think, you know, I, I don't want other people to go through what I did. I want to help people to have a more enjoyable birth, which then obviously has a knock on effect on parenting. So I trained as a hypnobirthing teacher what, 16 years ago and spent a long time because nobody had heard of it. No midwives knew what it was. No doctors knew what it was. And it was it was a really hard slog at the time. Everybody thought it was like some weird, crazy spiritual strange thing and that kind of everything happened organically after that so what I realized once I help people have a better birth is actually parenting wise I'm sure you can imagine you know the sort of parenting advice that was around 15 mm -hmm. 16 years ago it was all the the authoritarian nanny controlling children type and I found that I'd help people have a lovely birth and then they'd come back to me after six months and say please can you help us with our babies can you help us with our toddlers because there was nothing so then I mm -hmm. trained in um, infant massage and I went to sort of um, different study days and started a postnatal group and it was very much grassroots upwards and just worked with predominantly mothers because they were who came to the groups but with a lot of dads as well then I trained as a doula so I would attend births and I would work postnatally um, and it all kind of grew from that and then back in 2008 I think it was I started a, a blog about birth and parenting again you know no one was blogging everybody was like what's a blog um <laughs> And also, you know, for, for I kept thinking, I really want to write a book because I don't like the books that are out there. They don't feel right. I, and I wanted, I wanted to write the book that I wish that I had had six years previously. And everybody kept saying to me, oh, no, it's really hard to write a book. It's impossible to get published. So I wrote my blog. One day, sorry, this is such a long answer. No, <laughs> this is wonderful. Keep going. Come on. I want to hear this. <laughs> one day I had an email from somebody who is at my now publishers. Actually, no, before that, what was really interesting is I then submitted to my current agent and said, I have this idea for a parenting book. Please, would you take me on? And she just totally ignored me. I didn't even, <laughs> get, a, didn't even get a reply to that, which I'll come back to you later. But yeah, so then I got an email from my publishers saying, would you review? There's a bit by Naomi Stadlin, you know, who wrote What Mothers Do. And she'd written a new book. So like, she's an amazing psychotherapist that specializes in working with mothers. And they asked me, would I review her second book on my blog? And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yes, I loved her first book. What an honor. And they liked my review. And then I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to go for it. And I'm going to say, would you be interested in this book? And ordinarily, they don't allow publishers. You can't pitch directly to them. You have to go through an agent. But obviously, my agent, my now agent, ignored me. And <laughs> the editor and at somehow my... you still ended up with your. I know, I know. I so, explain that. But the editor at my publishers happened to be um, a mum who had a young child who also had an interest, and she actually left to train as a counsellor. And I think it was just, you know, synchronicity. I just struck lucky with the right editor at the right time who said, yeah, actually, this isn't a good idea. 
So that was Baby Car back in 2010. So my first mm-hmm. book. And then I released a book about babies and people were like, write a book about toddlers. And I had absolutely no intention 11, 12 years ago of being an author or writing more books. Some of the really embarrassing thing, I think, in Toddler Car, which is my second book, I said something like, I don't want to write lots of parenting books. And, you know, I don't want to stack up the royalties. Back in the days when I thought authors learn, earn a lot of money, which they don't, but, you know, <laughs> I was very naive. And it was just like, and I said in there something like, I don't think parents should have all these parenting books. And that's not what I want to achieve, which is really embarrassing now, like 11 books later. So no, it just kept coming. And the more I wrote, the more I loved it. And I was like, basically I poured my heart out and it was like free therapy for me so everybody says why do you do it ultimately I think I was in such a bad headspace and so messed up that every book I wrote was for me (laughs) Um, and it it kind of like healed a lot of my demons and you can see actually I get significantly less angry the more books I write (laughs) and I really don't you can read my first couple of books you can see I'm quite judgmental and very angry because I have issues I did um, not find that. I love those first not? books. I, right. you know, maybe I'm just angrier than you. So you yeah, seem all calm and fine there. So I don't. <laughs> so know. Anyway, my later books are far less angry. If you want to read them, but no. So I mean, that's it. Just kind of happened, and I'd write about one thing, and I'd like actually, I'd really like to say something about this. And my publishers were actually bless them. Are happy for me to keep writing things. And then, interestingly, 2015, I thought, actually, I really need an agent now. I don't really get this whole industry. So contacted my now agent who replied and said, yes, I love the idea. And then we met. And I said, by the way, five years ago, you ignored me. And she profusely apologized and said, oh, I didn't see your email. Otherwise, I would have taken you on. (laughs) So I just keep writing because I kind of like, I hated it at school. You know, I was really bad at writing in English. I get terrible marks and my teacher would say to me you know I wasn't very good at writing but I actually I find it very therapeutic and really enjoyable um so just keep writing really as long as people keep publishing keep reading and we'll just keep writing there we go really long answer sorry no but it's interesting because it's funny I always tell my husband's always like you know you're kind of a writer like part of what you're right because you write enough and I'm like I'm not a writer that's not I just don't identify as a writer at all because but I still that's, don't either yeah it's but it's really such a weird yeah I feel like it's such a weird thing I'm like no I don't write I mean there are words that come out in <laughs> courses and everything but it's not actually like I'm a writer I don't write right like that that's not yeah. how it works yeah it's it I don't consider myself a proper writer not like somebody yeah. who writes novels who's a proper writer yeah. I'm really good at it or even like a, um, you think about people that do kind of journalistic writing. So like nonfiction, yeah. but they're really, really just the way they write and the prose. I'm, that's not me. I'm like, I just, you know, have to shove ideas out and still can't do a book because that's, I feel <laughs> that, like that. No, no, no the trauma from but... my dissertation is enough. That is, that was my, <laughs> i my writing is I just write as I imagine somebody sitting next to me. I imagine like a, a new mum or a new dad who's, you know, worried and anxious or myself. And I write as if I was having a conversation with them, which kind of gets around the fact that actually I'm not very good at writing. But <laughs> it's just but that's like a conversation so in the well. book. But yeah. it reads so well because you're reading it and it feels, I think that's why the anger may not come out as much as you think because mm-hmm. it does feel like you're speaking to someone. Like it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, she's talking to me. I got this. All right. Um, okay. So you we get why you write. So, but for so long, let's be honest, let's go. Uh, I mean, of these 11 books, yeah, you 
uh, starting school. Okay. So what? 10 are really focused on the early years, yeah. the first few years. And then there's been this any age, but true. mostly true. brought by people with toddlers and sort of three and four mm-hmm. year olds. Yeah. And now you've jumped up to yeah. school age and specifically now in the new book between the tween years. So what prompted that shift? I mean, you've so well known, you do all this stuff with babies, toddlers, everything, you have your workshops, you do all of it. And then it's like, Nope, I need older kids. <laughs> I, I've got to do this. What were you healing? I it's I think a lot of it's based around my own experiences. Like I won't write about something unless I've lived it. So my youngest child is 14, my eldest is nearly 19. So I've I've done that phase. I've ticked that phase off and feel I'm qualified to talk about it now. <laughs> but I also really think a, a lot of what I write actually is due to feedback from people so I would have so many people saying to me please write something for older please write something for teenagers or you know just before teenagers but what was really interesting is I've been pitching the idea of this book for five years to my publishers and and actually I think even before that I think sort of 2012-13 I said I want to write about teenagers And I was told that books about older children don't sell. There's not a market for them. So people buy parenting. They buy loads of pregnancy books. They buy loads of baby books. They buy some toddler books. And then they just don't buy parenting books once their child is sort of three or four onwards. So from a commercial perspective, I was told it was a bad idea um, because you know, people, once you've got older kids, nobody really buys books about them. So my argument was, well, nobody really buys books and because there's actually not that many available and you can only buy a book if it's there <laughs> or you can only buy a book if the book that you want is there or like the up-to-date version is there. So no, I've, I've always wanted to. And I think I'm so passionate about that age having lived it. You know, I was really passionate about babies and toddlers when I had babies and toddlers. And I still am passionate about all aspects of parenting you know gentle parenting but for me having gone through that stage I just feel that we treat tweens and teens incredibly hostile what's the word hostily no Mm. what's the word yeah well hostile you know what I mean I I know what you mean yeah hostility let's say yes there you go this is why we're not the real writers we just (laughs) (laughs) we're just not very nice to them and I think there is such a need I think we're becoming much better over the last couple of years at treating babies and toddlers in a much more respectful and empathic way. And I don't think we are anywhere near doing that with older kids. So I I think it was really needed as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this actually kind of leads into my first question about the book. And I, I will say at the offset that you cover so much in this book that we can't even come close to glancing over all of it, because there is just kind of every little phase from puberty, brain development, etc. But one of the overarching themes that I found really kind of resonated across all chapters and what I really liked was this idea of connection. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, obviously that's in all your work, the idea of connection and attachment. But I do think that one of the struggles coming at this age is how many families feel that you know, the peer relationship usurps the parental relationship in this ages. So they almost remove themselves from this age range of things. So what is your take on the idea of the peer versus the parental relationship? And what is it that you feel that kids really do need with respect to connection at that age? I think the parental relationship 
most important at any age. But yes, absolutely. When they get older, the peer relationship and their friends and not just their friends, you know, the wider society. So if they're at school, their school teachers and people who lead clubs they go to. Absolutely. That takes over. And as they get older, obviously, they need to branch away from you. They need to explore who they are away from you and with other people. Um, but I think the sort of the, the everything that's underpinned by the parent-child relationship. So it's it's really hard, isn't it? Because you spend the first few years feeling exhausted by their constant need for you and the attachment. And just as you kind of get your head around it, you need to start letting go of them. And you're like, actually, I've just found who I am and my place. And I've just come to terms with your intense need for me. But the tween years and even more so the teen years, I think is about letting go, but letting go and keeping the roots with you. And the, the hardest thing I found personally was when my kids had friends I didn't like and when they had friends that I could see were really toxic for them. And you just, you cannot control their relationships and their friendships. You have to be there for them when it messes up and you can give them some guidance when it's asked for. But it's about kind of waiting in the wings almost, isn't it? For them to come back to you when they need you and then not being judgmental or saying something like I told you so but allowing them to find out who they are and find out who's a good friend, who's a bad friend and thinking about the influences, but always kind of always being there, but mm -hmm. not meddling, kind of taking a step back and just waiting for when they need you, which yeah. is really hard when you've been <laughs> the center of their world for three, four, five, six, seven years and yeah. suddenly you're not. I mean, yeah. you are still, but it doesn't feel like you are. Well, that's it. And so, I mean, in many ways, I think what people struggle with is how it's supposed to look, because I think you're right, those roots, that connection is actually still there. It's mm -hmm. just that it looks different, because yeah. it isn't the child that runs to you and insists upon snuggling up with you at all times and everything like that. So, I, I mean, what for you, what did it look like for that connection as a parent? How did you kind of know you were still maintaining it with your kids yeah. even so, though it wasn't as visible so in the book I talk about the analogy of a bridge and on one side there's childhood and you're standing holding your child's hand and they have to kind of traverse the bridge to the adulthood almost alone but you need to wait on the other end of that bridge and sort of watch them so to be there whenever they need you and sometimes I think it's it also depends a little bit on the relationship you have with them when they were younger. So I've always made a huge thing about emotions and listening to my kids and talking through. So sometimes they would come to me if they needed help. But sometimes when they're a bit older, I think when they need you, it can look very different to when they were younger. So you'll get a lot of angriness and a lot of big emotions and a lot of back chat. And it's it's not necessarily about them coming to you and being there, which you, of, of course you need to be. It's about, I think, learning to understand their cues of when something big is happening and understanding that they really need you and not taking it personally. So if they're really struggling with friends or with school, or for instance, and you're seeing a lot of anger and a lot of moodiness, and a lot of back chat, it's kind of a big sort of a giveaway red flag that something's happening and they need you so it's about recognizing that not taking it personally and thinking okay something's not right in their world and then thinking about how can I 
have a chat with them how can I get them to open up to me it's Mm -hmm. I talk in the book actually a lot of it is like investigative work you have to kind of know your child and who they're becoming and look for these cues and look for these signs but not take them personally and realize that it's a sign that something's not right and actually they really need you whereas actually conventional parenting advice will be very much if they're rude to you if they're back chatting if they're swearing at you if they're slamming doors put them in their room in time out or something which is you know, I talk lots of the book. It's a wrong thing to do. Well, it's a sign they need you. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think this speaks to you know you you talked about holding space for their big yeah. emotions, knowing that you have to be the one to manage those for them because they're not. And it's funny listening to you talk about this. It's like you could be talking about a toddler again in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> Our expectations of when they're rude and this and that to kind of punish and, you know, nip it in the bud and get it done. The prob- I was going to say the problem is toddlers are cute and yeah. society think of society knows that toddlers can't really behave and they get away with it. But when tweens and teens are older and they're taller than you and they have body hair and they have body odor and they're really not cute when they have a face full of acne and <laughs> and we treat them really horribly. We, we seem do. to think once they're as tall as us that they can behave like us and they don't. So it's that, you know, th- my aim really is to get people to realize, hey, you know, your kid may be taller than you and, you know, they may wear bigger shoes than you, but they are actually more like they were as a toddler than they are like you. And the, yeah. the worst thing, or I think the hardest thing about this age is this constant need to be the adult, which is so draining when you've had a really tough day or a week or month and your kid is obviously acting up because they're going through something and the temptation I think is to kind of replicate what may have been said or done to us when we were teenagers like go to your room don't come down until you can talk to me politely or something and you realize oh my goodness my kid needs something they're going through something I need to suck it up take a big breath be the adult and find out what's wrong always at times it's the, the worst for you when there's something going on and you're shattered And you just, you know, that's what you need to do, but sometimes it's kind of hard to do it. And I think you set up in your mind, as our kids get older, there is this notion, generally wrongly, that because they're getting older, they're going to just handle it all on their own. The expectations are so off for what, because they're independent in so many other ways, we seem to have imparted this emotional intelligence, emotional, uh, regulatory capacity, these expectations on that, that is far beyond what they're actually capable of um, at that age. And so I think it feels even harder when there's a bigger emotional outburst, a bigger struggle, because it can feel like, don't you have this by now? Come on, why (laughs) do you know? (laughs) I've I've always said, actually, that I think that the tween and teen years are this is going to be really hard for people listening with younger kids. I think they're the hardest years of parenting in terms of the emotional need and the emotional involvement you have to have. So when they're babies or toddlers, it is exhausting because they don't sleep and you have to do everything for them and they have such an intense physical need for you. But when they're older, so they can do things themselves and physically they don't need you, but emotionally they need you so, so much more. And it's like the phrase, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. But, you know, I always think that we need to be given another period of parental leave, like paternity leave or maternity leave when we have teenagers, because I think the headspace they need from us is so much more than when they were young. You know, the older my kids get, the more they need me. 
And it's yeah. that's not what I thought when I before I had kids. I thought when they're teenagers, they look after themselves and they don't need yeah. me anymore. But they but, definitely don't. Uh, yeah, it is. So and I think the other hard part is that at times you don't get the re positive reinforcement that you get when they're younger. You know, when you're there for your baby, your toddler, even your preschooler, once they've had that out, they just come to you and they love you and they're so clear how much they love you and they just yeah. say the cutest things and give you the cutest looks and you just get to revel in that and you feel like, okay, I've done it. And I think it, you don't always get that reinforcement when you've had that headspace for your tween or your teen, because that's not, there's still way more going on for them. So you don't get that positive reinforcement. You don't get mm -hmm. all of the physical love and sweetness and, oh my God, I'm going to draw you a little cart and give it to you and make yeah. you know that exactly. I love you. That's all not there. So you're doing yeah. it and it becomes even more draining. You know, in the end, I think that's the, the long-term game now becomes, okay, they're adults and they love me and they want to be with me. And yeah. that is, you know, not something a lot of adults can say. I mean, there's enough adults out there that are, you know, I'm quite happy to move away from my family. We don't need to yeah. be close. And I think the goal is to not have that, to have It's a really thankless period, isn't it? I think you <laughs> sort of eight to, I would say 17 or 18. So my, my oldest is nearly 19. I have such a close relationship with him now and he talks to me about I mean everything constantly he he's meant to be at university but he's he's doing university online at the moment because he got sent back home because of COVID in December but when he was there he spoke to we spoke to each other at least once a day every day constant text messages and actually I have numerous conversations with him recently when he says mum it's really weird my friends don't talk to their mums like I talk to you and you know when I have a problem I talk to you and they all say, why are you talking to your mum all the time? And they, they, they really don't get on with their parents and they, they don't, they don't, you know, you know, everything. And I'm happy to tell you everything and I'm not embarrassed. And if I have a trouble, I talk to you, but my friends don't do that. And it's so weird. And yeah. I think that's the nicest thing after, I mean, he was horrendous to be honest between eight and 16 <laughs> and we didn't, <laughs> we did have a connection, close connection, but it was very thankless. Yeah. It was very hugless and I love you less and stuff, but it, it comes back and you do get the rewards when they're later when you get, you know, I, this isn't the sort of normal parent team relationship. Normal's the wrong word, but it, I have a very different relationship with him than I know a lot of his peers have with their parents now. And that's, yeah. that's a reward, but it, it took a nearly 10 years to get that reward. <laughs> And that's that long term. Yeah, you're yeah. still exactly you lack those. And it's, you know, my husband has the same relationship with with his firstborn son, uh, my stepson. And it's amazing. Like, they'll get on the phone and talk for hours about. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know because I'm not on but they're just I, he gets on the phone. And I'm like, well, I've lost him for the night. And, um, there we go. <laughs> and, it's, and it's such but it's lovely. It is so wonderful to see it that is. kind of connection there. There is so much love and so much just trust in one another with everything. Mutual that it's, respect it's, for each other. Yeah, mutual And it's just, it is so wonderful because it feels like that is what a relationship should be like. That as they get older, you know, there's no fear that they're going to lose touch or anything. That that feels like solidified, that there mm -hmm. is a very strong, very powerful relationship there. 
that you know fear like of lying to me or for instance like when his friends were smoking or taking drugs we would just have really open and honest conversations about it because he knows there's no fear of reprimand from me yes and that's so crucial that and I think that actually it it speaks to one of the things that I found really important as someone who you know studied perspective taking um and empathy in my my graduate work here you had a really great discussion on revisiting our own tween years Mm -hmm. and kind of running that perspective taking activity but I do think that is really hard for a lot of parents to do yeah and it is you know, I guess, why do you think it's so hard to go back and face it? Is it just that, because I don't even think it's that it was necessarily hard for us, but the idea of perspective taking with our tweens seems difficult for people to come around to. It's a lot of work, isn't it? I think we were just like quick fixes because we're so busy and, you know, we want to fix our kids, not fix ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for some of us, it is painful. For some of us, we've probably repressed things. Um, For some, it's like admitting that our parents had faults and also that we have flaws. And I think some people aren't willing to do that. Um, And it's just a whole heap more work, isn't it, as well? (laughs) And it's just at a point when you just think, I just don't want any more work. Mm -hmm. But it's it's, the most difficult thing, I think, is realising it's for all of parenting, really. It's us that needs to do the changing, not trying to change our children. Yeah, it's that makes so much sense. And it's I think that also relates to one of those big ones. You know, you interviewed kids in your book and I love their Mm -hmm. little quotes and everything in it. But those themes that came up for them about what they wished their parents did and everything. And it just that overarching theme of feeling heard when I mean, it cropped up a lot. And it's funny because I actually had this thought I've been we listen to a lot of audiobooks when mm-hmm. we drive places which has now been a while because we haven't driven anywhere in a while because again <laughs> COVID yeah. so there's been no long trips with anything but when we go we would always listen to audiobooks and um with my daughter who's a tween we're listening to mm-hmm. the the tween genre you know all the protagonists are in this kind of 8 to 12 13 range and mm-hmm. I don't know how many books in but I was sitting in the car listening to yet another and it was so painfully aware to me that the theme and the writing of them even, you know, and I don't know if these are authors tapping their own youth was adults Mm -hmm. that never listened. All the problems always stemmed from kids who either would try and speak to an adult who would then dismiss them or just even that innate, Oh, I know I can't tell my parents because they won't believe me. I know I can't tell so-and-so because they won't believe me. And it is like the anthem of the tween mm-hmm. is no one listens to me and no one takes like me a, seriously because I'm not grown up yeah and it doesn't matter yeah, it's it, what a lot of the kids would say when I spoke with them and said you know what, what would you like parents and carers to know and it, yeah you're right everybody just wanted to be listened to and to have their opinion be valued and mattered yeah and I think a lot of people mistake that for kids thinking they want to rule the roost because I hear Mm -hmm. so many parents that try to say they're still young I'm still in charge da 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 and it's like I think about a a work environment it's like yeah your boss still gets final say Mm -hmm. but it's a very different work environment if your boss says okay let's talk about this what's going on and you know you most people are happier to stay at a job where they feel valued for what they're doing and that even if their decision isn't always chosen 
they know that they were actually listened to at that time. Yeah, that you've and, had input and that what you what you think matters, really, isn't yeah. it? It doesn't it doesn't matter if you don't go with what they suggest. Exactly. But the fact that you've listened to what they're going to say. Yeah. And, and again, it's not about not having boundaries or not having discipline. Yes. Both are really, really important. But when kids are older, I really do think they should get a say. Yeah. And I think it also helps us. I've found personally, when I talk about any kind of decision that my daughter may not be happy with, if I talk to her about it and we talk, okay, well, what is going on and what's happening? Even prior to making the decision, I at least know why she might not be happy with it. And that Mm -hmm. allows me to cater, okay, let's talk about this. It's not, oh, you're sulking and this is that. It's, no, I can see exactly why you feel that way. And again, that empathy and I understand. And now I can explain more. This is why I'm siding here Um, because I feel like I need to be able to explain why I'm not choosing your choice is X, Y, and Z. But the explanation is so important. So in the book I talk about in the screen time section, and how it's so important for tweens to know what screens do to their brains and their bodies. Um, and I'm, you know, with my sleep book, I'm obsessed about blue light in the evening and we have red for bed and my kids just, you know, just laugh at me like, oh, mom, you're so embarrassing. But we have had for, you know, since they were six or seven or eight or whenever it was that they used screens, I've made sure that they understand the impact that it has on them, that it's addictive, that the light impacts their sleep and that the the time on them can impact their weight and their health. And they have to know why I need to limit the screen time, because if they don't know why we're limiting it, it just feels a bit like a punishment to them. But when they understand that actually this is for your overall health and well-being, and I get that you don't like it and it's okay to be angry, but this boundary stands and this is why. You know, when I'm trying to talk about tidying their room and we had a whole session of looking at videos of dust mites and other disgusting things that grow in rooms when you don't clean them up ever. So (laughs) once you explain to them a little bit more, they may not be happy, but they're much more on board with you. We just don't do that enough. It's much more. I've said do this. So do it. And I also find sometimes it's we forget that kids don't always have the skills to do what we're asking them to do. And, you know, I think about screen time and I know there's a big push and some kids might self-regulate really, really well, but screens are addictive and the parts of the brain that allow us to kind of overcome that addiction and kind of stop that impulse control is not well developed at that age. And so sometimes we have to be aware of, you know, I'm stepping in, because I acknowledge that there's a skill set that isn't there. And we can work on building that skill set for you in different ways, set timers or do, you know, other cues to help you be more in control of it. But we have to acknowledge the limitations of it, I mean, even neurological limitations that our kids have too. It just comes back to the same thing of you being an external regulator, doesn't it? Whether you're helping to regulate their emotions or regulate their decisions or regulate their screen time. It's yeah, I mean, I I am not a fan of unrestricted screen time. I don't believe that kids can self-regulate screen time. Um, You know, I I know many people do. It's just not something I believe. And certainly my kids could not self-regulate screen time. Yeah, it's and I think that's something. And again, I can't judge because I don't know. I feel like always there are families that maybe they are true. Their kids are just not interested. And I see certain periods where, you know, I think if we lived in Hawaii, maybe my kids would regulate really well because in the summer, they seem totally uninterested in being on screens very often because they're out all the time. But there's winter 
and <laughs> winters are really also hard. Also depends. It's the type of screens, isn't it? My daughter can yeah. kind of take or leave screens, but my sons with like Xbox or PlayStation games, that's that's a very different thing mm -hmm. than having an iPad and watching video or something. It seems yeah. the specific type of screen time that I truly don't believe that they can run. So gaming, basically. Yeah, is one. And I find, you know, I also just don't like how screens get used for everything. This is a totally different topic now. We're veering off, but that's okay. <laughs> um, because it's like my son uses a screen a lot during the day to play music. He right. loves having music going. And so, yeah, he's got music going for hours while he's playing with his trucks and it's on there and he's got different. And so I'm like, okay, he's got the screen going, but it's not. It's not watching the screen, screen. It, right? It's that. Whereas, so what we've done now with with my tween is, um, we've brought her back to the stone ages of CDs and um, <laughs> physical media. So she has a CD player, <laughs> and we've bought her CDs, and that's that's what we do there. That's our solution. When he gets old enough, he can have that too. But um, <laughs> that's I, I miss physical media. I'm sorry, okay. I think it's good. It's um, it's helpful. So yeah, and that's you know something that I think goes on there. So. I want to I want to talk about anxiety in this group, too, because I think so much of what we've kind of already talked about with respect to, you know, the ongoing struggle, the big emotions, the everything that they have really stems down to the fact that there is a lot of anxiety in this group. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of changes in their brain, isn't there? There's an awful lot of changes in their body that they have to get used to. There are, you know, it's it's the age of changing to what schooling system do you have over this? So here we they change to a high school at 11. Is that the same where you are? We have, um, I homeschool, so I'm always, but um, um, ours is really weird. Um, no, ours goes up to, no, I guess 11 would be, well, depends on where you are. Some will switch at 11 to a combined middle and high school. Right. And I think there are still some schools that have middle school. So there's this awkward, yeah. just two years of kind of 12 and 13, you're, in a separate school and then you switch again up at but there's, 14. But there's a lot of change, isn't there? So there's yeah. moving, there's meeting new people and everything is changing in their body. And I think sometimes they, particularly if they don't have a, a, an incredibly strong bond with you, they can kind of scrabble to find a little bit of an anchor. But also there's all like the body positivity stuff and adding screens back in again and, you know, it, just some of the adverts that they get on TV or in magazines, or as you say, the books as well, it, everything almost seems to be undermining them. And, and they live in a world where what they say isn't valued or not listened to. And I think, yeah, there's a, a huge, huge amount of anxiety. Um, and if they aren't listened to, I think that could be, I think it kind of builds up, doesn't it? And it sort of mm -hmm. snowballs. And what you normally see with anxiety is it really tends to show in the teen years, depending on how it was handled in the tween years. So in the teen years, you would often see things like eating disorders coming in or something more like sort of self-harm or something like that coming in. But I think in the tween years, I wouldn't say anxiety itself is a huge issue. It's, it's more that they're trying to, they feel a bit rudderless, a bit ankerless and finding their place in the world with all of these changes that are happening around them and inside them can be hugely problematic. And it's sort of our role, I think, to be those deep roots, to sort of be there and say, I'm here for you. I can see that you're struggling. What is it you need from me? Does that make mm. sense? It does. It does. And it makes me think about the role of schooling in all of this, just even mentioning yeah. the change in schooling, because I feel like one of the most difficult spaces 
for tweens and teens is that school environment. Um, mm. The mass number of kids, the bullying that can go on, the struggles with individual teachers, the ideas yeah. of appearance with others and intelligence with others, and that comparative nature that seems to be bred in the school environment. Even I think one of the things, you know, there, there is quite a lot of research that shows that change in schooling is one of the most stressful life experiences for them at that age. But even going from being the youngest, sorry, the oldest in the school and sort of knowing it inside and out and being the big kids and suddenly they're these like tiny kids in a big space where they're, they don't really know anybody. But yeah, it, that change, I think that transition is so tricky for them. And the friendships come in again. So I read quite a lot of research that was saying if a child starts their school, so they go through the transition and they have just one close friend at that time, that actually that can really help to remediate all the anxiety and stress and make it easier for them. But obviously, if they're not going through it with a friend, that throws up issues again, even if there is no bullying. It's just that they've kind of not found their tribe yet and they don't yeah. almost know who they want to be and they kind of feel very alone. Yeah. And I think really that, isn't it? The more you think about it. I know. know. I'm like, oh my God, this is such a depressed. I mean, it is. It's so hard though. And I remember, I mean, you've brought me back that perspective taking of starting when I switched schools at the end of, I had that one transition and oh, it felt terrifying to go. Yeah. And the only lucky part I had was at least I wasn't the youngest because how the school I transitioned <laughs> to was the school I transitioned to was actually one that went from K all the way to the end of high school. So, yeah. and the groups were divided into two campuses. And at least the second campus I went to, I had those two years there. So I was still older than everyone else. So, you yeah. know, it wasn't like I was, you know, terrified of all the bigger people, but um, it was, it was really And we scary. didn't do that at the period where there's COVID, where there's climate change anxiety, yeah, right. where there's all of the social media that all the kids appear to be on, even oh when old enough to be on it. Yeah, and I just actually we had it really, really easy. Yeah, comparatively. It, yeah. It, yeah. So actually, let me ask about that social media because I I admit my daughter doesn't really do it. No. Um, we've we've kept that away, and but I know it's going to change. And I, I mean, know it shouldn't apply to this age because the the minimum yeah. age is for all of the sites are thirteen. Yeah. So if you're reading a, reading about eight to thirteen year olds, it shouldn't apply. However, but, it really does. You know, kids 9, 10, 11, 12, particularly girls, if you're talking something like Instagram or mm -hmm. Snapchat, it, it's, they all seem to have it. Yeah. And then there's the pressure from your child of, well, so-and-so's got it and I'm feeling really left out because they're having conversations on it and I'm not on it. How do you navigate that? Like, what is your advice for that? Because that's true. That's that balancing of friendships of having to go there. And, you know, does that harm the friendship versus the overall well-being and safety of not being? I was being really on... strict. My kids didn't yeah. have it until they were 13. Yeah. <laughs> and when they did have it, they had to have me as a friend so that I could, I could check that, you know, they were okay. And we had all sorts of conversations about don't trust anybody in the internet and don't yeah. trust who they are. Who they are. But I was probably a little bit heavy handed, but, <laughs> you know, I think we, the minimum ages are there for a reason. Yes. And they can be such toxic places because it's not just the conversations they're having with online. It's what else they're exposed to and who they're following and what messages they're getting from them. And a yeah. lot of, younger influences or influences that youngsters like actually are really a very bad influence right but, is how did we yeah. I admit I 
I'm so out of it when it comes to this stuff that it was only what, like a couple of years ago that I actually had heard of an influencer and <laughs> what this was. And I'm like, what are, what are, what are people talking about? And they're like, so-and-so is an influencer. And I'm like, what, what does that even mean? What is going on here? And I'm kind of appalled by it. Like, how do we have people yeah. getting, I mean, I'm still, I'm kind of dumbfounded by the whole notion of it because it just doesn't make sense to me that this yeah. is something that people are getting paid to knowingly try to shift these. And it, it is really geared towards young people because yeah. they're, they're like most vulnerable. videos, which are massive. Yeah. Or, you know, you have influencers trying to sell certain toys or gifts or brands or something and you have to explain to your children you know these people probably don't use this product they probably never have and never will they're being paid to promote it and that doesn't mean that they like it it doesn't mean that they use it mm -hmm. but you know it's their advertising they're selling to you yes it, you have to have many many different conversations when your kids start to use oh, it God. How did you, uh, so here's a question. How do you navigate the conversations when you yourself as a parent have never been exposed to this? Like, where did you, I mean, if my kid had come back and talked about an influencer two years ago, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. I don't know what's going on there. Um, I, how, I kind of felt I needed to do the research. Like I needed to do my homework. That if I was going to literally join the sites look at them read about them there are some really yeah. good resources um that tell you about different sites and the different problems with them so yeah you have to kind of almost live it for a little bit so that you understand it yeah and I think that makes sense I know I'm gonna have to eventually veer into that but as we're still in the world of CDs I think we're, we're <laughs> <laughs> I haven't joined the TikTok that's the one thing I've resisted which one uh, TikTok Oh, oh that, TikTok. I, I have heard of TikTok. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. I've heard of it. Um, I've only ever seen videos that got shared elsewhere from people, though. I've never joined. Right. And I mean, you know me, I'm so bad. I only just joined Instagram. And I no, was no, out I of like 18 months ago. Yeah, immense pressure. <laughs> I was just like, what, five months ago? And enough. I was like, no, you've got to join. Oh, really? I have to? Okay, I will. Um, I'm Facebook. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah. But even that I'm barely on because I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Social media is not my thing. At least you uh, do a podcast. I haven't got around to doing a podcast. <laughs> well, it's, I feel like that's not social media though. Is it? Does that count as social media? I don't even know, but we sound really old now, don't we? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I always say I was talking to um, someone the other day and about an experience with my sister being a baby and she was very colicky and I would trade out with my mom to hold her and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah. And, you know, I would put on my Walkman and listen. And I'm like, the look, you know what I mean? Of <laughs> You're like, oh, what's that's, that? Yeah. What is that yeah. Walkman? It's like that old contraption that's now in museums that plays tapes that, you know, it's, yeah. I'm like, it's like a playlist on a physical media that you could do. Remember mixtapes? They were so fun. I do. I know. And somehow they seem so much mix, mix. What do they call them? Mix playlists. Yes, yeah. exactly. But I mean, when someone made you a mixtape back then, it was so meaningful. Like they had to put in the effort of all the yeah. CDs and switching it up and getting, I mean, there was really something to it, you know? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it, I know. It just all comes back to things were a lot easier for us. I know. So we, right. we must just keep in mind how difficult it is for tweens and teens today. You know, life yeah. is so much more complex. Yeah. So, the other thing, I mean, I'm sorry, this is so very off topic, but I no. talk about in the book about um, LGBTQ issues. And yes. when I was a tween, I really, I mean, obviously, I grew up in an era of Section 28, which I talk about in the book, which is in the UK, our Prime Minister completely forbids the schools to talk about anything that wasn't, um, you know, sort of cisgendered and man, woman, families, nuclear families, that you were absolutely forbidden to talk about homosexuality in any form. It was considered a sin until I think it was 2002. So it wasn't in my education. And I had a, a few gay friends when I was a teenager, but I don't even think I knew what it was when I was a tween. But tweens now, I was talking to my daughter who, when she, I think at the time she was 12, and she's like, oh, yeah, so so-and-so is a lesbian and so-and-so is bi. Oh, and this person, I think that they think that they're pansexual. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's so it's amazing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's wonderful. But the, the awareness that they have now and the world that they yes. live in is so different that, you know, I'm just didn't have a clue I was still playing with Barbies at that age <laughs> but it, it's yeah. you know, it, their world encompasses so much more and so many more things for them to think about now than I think ours did at that age well and that you know still relates somewhat to that anxiety you think about the type of political nature they're exposed to and in some ways it's wonderful but like you said because they are aware of these differences and they don't seem to care they're just so accepting because oh gosh, they, they're, they're really good as normal like they don't care rightfully yeah. no one should care so it's so wonderful that they just you know my daughter's the same at 10 she'll talk about you know being a lesbian transgender what none she's just like yeah, yeah that's just who you are like that what's the problem with who the you are there's nothing really lovely which is gives me such hope for the future but they also have all these other political things that are good that it's there i think like mm -hmm. the discussion around climate change the discussion around black lives matter all these things are really crucially important and I want them to be aware there, but that is a lot of anxiety too. It's just saying it feeds straight back into the anxiety again. Yeah, that they're facing all these things that, you know, we didn't think about probably for the worse because yeah, yeah. had we had it on our mindset, we might not have the messes that we happen to be in now. But they've got more of a weight on their shoulders, haven't they? You know, they grow up and they know that they've got to care about the environment. They know that they've got to care about Black Lives Matter and all races and they've got to care about being an ally for the the um, LGBTQ community and I think maybe there's a few more expectations of them and you know the weight on their shoulders of they want to change you know this is the exciting thing about this generation is they really are the generation that are super accepting and really will bring forward change I think ours yeah. started it but the new generation I think are the generation that are really going to change the world but then what a lot for them to do when they also need to be kids. Yeah, exactly. And when I think I see some of my biggest frustrations are, you know, you, you talked about allyship and everything, but I see both adults dismissing their uh -huh. forward nature, you know, oh, they're just kids. They, we don't even want to listen to what they have to say. Yeah. When you take someone like Greta Thunberg and, of course, we should be listening to what she has to say. And mm. there's all these teens that are doing and tweens doing so much to mm -hmm. advocate for change and yet they're being dismissed outright yeah and they're being burdened with i think our expectations of them 
you know, I hear people talk about grades and getting homework done and, and holding down a job and doing X, Y, and Z. And they always go back to, oh, well, when I was young, I did it. And I was <laughs> able to do X, Y, Z. And But we lived in a different world. Yeah. And we weren't worried about everything else. And schooling was different. The amount of yeah. school, the amount of extracurriculars, the ability to get a job was easier that paid. There was, I mean, everything was different. And again, going back to the perspective taking, mm-hmm. we want a perspective take, but we're really bad at it, right? Yeah. Like this is, it's, you know, I think back, my supervisor coined the term curse of knowledge mm-hmm. that um, the more and she studies it in adults, it's the theory of mind that the more we are certain of something or experience something, the more we are certain everyone knows the same as us, the experience as us. And our ability to take another person's perspective, particularly Mm -hmm. a naive one, is very limited. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this is kind of, we're at this loggerheads with this generation because even if we try to perspective take and go back to our time, our time is so different from theirs mm-hmm. that we simply can't. We're drawing from experience that doesn't so reflect the really realities of today. Yeah. We cannot expect them to be like us and behave like us. I think what we can do, though, is we can go back and think about how did I feel then? You know, when I was rude and I got in trouble and I was sent to my room or I more often than not, actually, I would storm up to my room myself and I would sit in my room and sulk or cry. And actually, what I really wanted at that point was not to be rude or not to be angry or to be by myself. What I really wanted was my parent, one or both of them to come up and just say, are you OK? Should I sit with you? Do you want to hug? Should we talk? And I spent so many hours in my room sulking. Yeah. And, you know, now we view something like that or, you know, rudeness or slamming doors and going off to their room. So many people view that as really naughty behavior and they should be punished for it or they should be left alone or excluded in the room. But actually what they really just need, it comes back to what you said at the beginning, they just need that connection. Mm-hmm. But I think we know that deep down. We know what they're, we made, the world may be entirely different. But the needs and the feelings are still basic. They're still the same. And that's the need for connection, the need to be heard, and they need to be loved however we behave. And really, I think, that's what it comes down to. And I think it also feeds, though, the other part, because when we do connect, that's how we learn all the burdens mm-hmm. on them, all the thoughts, all the anxieties, everything they face. We can only learn what they're experiencing by connecting with them and saying, yeah hey, what's going on? Like, what are you worried about? What's going on? Like, let's talk about it. And for so many of us who didn't grow up with all these things in our mind, we may be oblivious at first about what they're experiencing. It may be something they saw on social media. It may Mm -hmm. be the way they feel about their body by comparing to other people switching schools. It may be one of a million things, but the only way we ever get to know that is by talking to them about it yeah. and making yeah. that connection to begin with. I'm kind of like a bit related recently. My, I think he was 15 at the time. I did, he got very, very stressed and very angry. And, you know, you just knew something was wrong. And it turns out that he was really worried about the US elections because he'd been overhearing news and they'd spoken about it at school. I, I never in a million years would have thought that the worry about it and who was going to get in or not would have such an impact on him but yeah. he really took it to heart but it just came out you know the only thing I saw was really quite unpleasant behavior yeah exactly and you know <laughs> I like to think of it though I get really unpleasant when I'm stressed I yeah, am absolutely. a grump to be around and uh-huh. so if I don't 
you know, if people luckily, like as an adult, people around me will often just be like, okay, what's going on? Um, and so it seems so odd that we just wouldn't afford, you know, the idea that somehow because our teens, our tweens, children are younger, they're supposed to just be happy all the time. It's that old, mm -hmm. no one wants to see you upset kind of attitude right. that really goes far back. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to this activism and allyship because mm -hmm. I think that's such a, I want to debunk some of the myths here because I think some people, hopefully not many because of the audience for this, but I think some people may still have ideas that, you know, oh, I don't really want to get into some of those touchy subjects. We don't want to talk about uh, homosexuality or transgender yeah. or even Black Lives Matter. That's too, too big for them. We don't want to go there. Or you know, there's concern they're just too young to comprehend all these things. Um, what do you say to those families to try and get them out from that to oh. understand what? Are, are, I don't think it's ever too, you're ever too young to have big feelings about something, are you? And, you know, they live in a world where even if we don't talk to them about these things, they will pick up on it. They will hear the radio. They will hear the TV. They will hear conversations that we have with our partners or our friends or in our relatives. So. And I would hope if they are at school, they're talking about these sort of things at school. Perhaps you'd be talking about them more if you're home educated. I'd imagine you probably would. But they hear they, they live in the same world as us. They're not yeah. blind and deaf to everything that goes on around it. And of course, they they have opinions and they have big feelings and they have fears. So no, why are they too young? It's really interesting is that a little bit unrelated, I posted on my social media a couple of days ago about using the correct terminology for uh, genitals. And I would say 90% of people are like, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we, we wouldn't call an arm an army wordy, curly whirly or something. So why would we call um, a vulva a, an airy fairy or something with the bizarre names that people call it? And then there were probably about 10% of people who just replied and said something like, children shouldn't be talking or worrying about these things. This is for adults. You know, they should let kids be kids. Don't sexualize them by talking about it. It's like what talking about genitals is not sexualizing children. You know, children actually already have sexual feelings anyway, as uncomfortable yeah. as that is for parents. But it's, I think, it's just kind of really disrespectful of their experience, isn't it? That mm -hmm. they're sort of presuming because they're children, they don't have these feelings or these opinions or this sort of experience that we do. And you know, this idea that kids should be kids and they can worry about that later. I just yes. think it's so wrong and so outdated and so dismissive. And yeah. these people, I think, are so out of touch. You know, we just think, when I was eight or nine, yes, I had big thoughts and feelings about things. I think for me at that age, it was animals. But I was a huge advocate for, like, animal cruelty or against animal cruelty at that age. Yeah. And that was, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't too young for that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's funny because me too with animals, by the way, I think that was our time too, was all the animal rights coming up. That's when I became a vegetarian and all yeah. that changed. But and I, you know, wanted to be a vegetarian. And I was told I was too young to make that decision. Like, oh, when you're older, you can choose. Oh, I was very lucky. Nope. I was, I was 11 and it was fully yeah. respected. Um, and that was fine. Uh, but it's, you know, I often think with this too young business and I think some of the misunderstanding is, I don't know why our culture does this, but we seem to just view things in polar opposites. Mm -hmm. Either they're wholly innocent and we're not touching any of these taboo subjects and they get to be kids, 
or we're basically going to be taking them to brothels and, yeah. you know, getting yeah. on and showing porn movies at home yeah. and all this stuff. And, you know, there is an in-between of, you know, allowing them to, to talk about these things and in an age-appropriate way that Absolutely. goes, you know, and obviously with the names for genitalia, that's age-appropriate when they're young. Like this is, yeah. you know, there is no, at any age, that is age appropriate. No. Um, but I do think it's part of this just seems to be for whatever reason, there's this dichotomous view of of these issues where, or if we talk about, you know, anything political, we're going to take it to the extreme of, mm -hmm. you know, genocide and this and that. And it's, but even that, I mean, those are topics that kids learn about in school. When is, you talk about World talk, War II. If we don't talk about it with them, particularly anything sex related, they will talk about it with their peers. They will search on the internet when they can get around any blocks that you've put on. They will find their own information. And, yeah. you know, either you let them find out all the, all the incorrect information from peers or let them access things you don't want them to access or you open and honest and you talk about it with them. Yeah. And it's funny because I, um, you know, you talk a bit and we won't get into all of it, but you do know the the period of having your menses and starting that mm -hmm. menstruation. And I have been, I was so thankful in many ways. We just, I find the earlier you start these conversations, the less awkward, the easier, yeah. the better. You know, There's my no kids. reveal later, Right. There? There's no big deal. It was my kids both from the time I've been, you know, they were young and asked a question. We talked about it. So there's no, no stigma, no nothing. Mm -hmm. They're just that, that is what it is. And it's, it's almost like the later we wait for these conversations, the more awkward and uh -huh. weird they become because it's not a gradual learning. It's not a, you know, when kids are younger, they don't have the sense of shame inherently surrounding all these things. Mm -hmm. And so a period, you know, a period is a period is a period. And that is what it is. And there's lots of questions that come up about it. And we talk mm -hmm. about what it means with respect to fertility and everything else. And that is, you know, I, I find that just so much easier, I even just as a parent, like just yeah. forget my kid for a moment for my own sense of comfort it was so much easier talking about it initially when they're younger and just having it be a normal part of our lives yeah, yeah. right I mean, you know talking about sex or how babies are made I always just yeah. you know I was an antenatal teacher at the time so we just stuck videos <laughs> on there, watch babies being born and you know my daughter when she was at um preschool so she was um pre-k I think for you and she was three and she was Mary in the, in the nativity play and I got a phone call and just said, your daughter is incredibly realistic at giving birth, <laughs> but we kind of need her to tone it down a little bit. Because, you know, it was, I was just an antenatal teacher. I'd have birth videos on and she was just exposed to them and groaned a bit too much and squatted a bit too much with the liking. But no, it's just, you know, if you, if people say, what do you tell people, uh, tell kids about sex? It's like, well, the truth. Yeah. Exactly. This is what it How's is. How's a baby, mate? You just tell them the truth because when yeah. they're younger, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, now let's go and watch Peppa Pig again. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they're 10 and you have to sit them down and say, right now, we need to talk about this. Yeah. There's always that understanding that goes and then they just live with it. And it, yeah. it's normal that goes on beyond. That's exactly. Yeah. It's so sorry. That story is hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> That it was, it was very embarrassing for me at the time. And then when I was yeah. watching it on the day, I was like, please, please just rein it in a bit. 
Yeah, it was theatrical. Yeah. It reminded me, you know, we had people ask my daughter, my son was born at home. We had planned, <laughs> I planned a home birth with both of them, but him, I got it. And yeah. uh, my daughter was five at the time. And, you know, people, oh, well, what are you going to do with her? She can't, you know, be around. There's yeah. all that concern. Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, I don't know. She's going to be home. I should be fine. And she was fine until at one point she came down and asked to go to her friend's house because mom, you're just too loud and I can't watch my shows. <laughs> and was, you know, there was no like shame, embarrassment. She was just like, I, I'm really trying to watch my shows and you're just too loud for me. I can't do this. Um, and it was like, okay, bye. <laughs> I had to say, I had my last two were at home and I had to send my boys away because they kept, I was in a birth pool and they kept trying to like put toys in it while I was <laughs> literally about to have a baby. And I'm like, really, I cannot deal with this anymore. I can't labor and have ducks and Legos <laughs> past me in the birth pool. So they, they were removed to a friend's house. That is, yeah. No, and, and I, you know, had no problem if she had wanted to go earlier, but it was just her reasoning was so it was not, it was gross. It was not, oh my God, there was no, idea, you know, and we talked about birth. She knew, you know, what was going to happen and everything. And it was, we were very open from the get go, but she was just, her main concern was, I am trying to watch my guys now <laughs> and you're really getting in the way of this right now. Yeah. So if you could just remove me, <laughs> to my friends, I will be happy. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, it is. I, I think it's so underrated, this whole talking to our kids about everything. There is so much, it is so much easier down the line when mm. it starts younger. Um, in many ways, I think I would say, you know, although you wrote the book for parents of, of this between age, yeah. I almost feel like parents of younger should be reading it now because yeah. it sets the stage for all the things that are easier earlier than yep. jumping into it at the time. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I would say five, six or seven, it would be amazing getting there early and prepare. Because mm -hmm. then a lot of, I think, what I talk about, how to fix, the, well, fix these problems but cope with these problems, then, yeah, you may not have those problems if you're preparing earlier. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, I, I want to ask my final question because I've taken so much of your time and I am so thankful though I could talk to you for ages. Um, what is the one thing you wish that all parents entering or in this kind of between time knew? One thing. <laughs> that I think that they look different and they, they don't look so attractive and they don't cuddle you. And you say everything we said earlier, but they are still the same child. That same bond is still there, but you may, it may feel like you're losing them for a little bit and you have to find your place as a parent, you know, like a new place. Um, a lot of people do what I did, which is sort of this displaced love and get a dog, you know, when they, because <laughs> you, you've got all this nurturance and all this love and it has to go somewhere, but it can feel it can feel like they're slipping away and it can feel like you've lost everything you have but they absolutely they do come back mm -hmm. and just because things are a little bit difficult and uncomfortable and so tiring that it won't be like it forever and the, the difficult thing is is that you have to put so much groundwork in in the tween and teen years but you don't really reap the reward for it at that point yeah. And it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong, but you have to kind of find there's something deep inside you to kind of keep giving and keep going and know that you're building something for the future and they will come back. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, it can feel a bit thankless, but two things, I know you said one, but the other thing is please just remember what you felt like at that age and what you needed. 
And even when they're saying really nasty things to you while they're acting in the most unlovable of ways, just think, if I was acting like that as a tween, what would I be feeling inside and what did I need? And the answer is almost always love and connection. Yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you so much. This is, I just, I'm so thankful that you wrote this book. I'm so thankful that you're willing to sit down and talk to me about it. Um, So where can people find the book? And what are you working on next? Oh, um, I don't think I can tell you what I'm I'm working on something a little bit different. So still, I, I'm not allowed to announce yet because it's... Oh, dear. All right. All right. Ink's not dried. But um, yeah, something something a bit different. I hope some people have been asking me to write something for a long, long time that will be coming out next year. So I probably am not allowed to announce it till about September time, but... <laughs> I am working on something and I'm really excited and it's very different. And you spoke at the beginning about imposter syndrome and I'm having huge imposter syndrome. (laughs) I'm wondering if I'm the right person to write it, but feel it really needs to be written. Um, Where can they find it? So currently it's out in the UK. Um, Publishing works a little bit strange with um, being released in the USA and Canada. So what's happening, I think imminently you guys should be able to get it in ebook and audiobook. Um, The paperback may not be out until the end of next year. Not sorry, not next year. This year, that's no, not that bad. <laughs> I was and like, wow, that's year, really bad. <laughs> you'll be able to get the ebook and the audiobook, or there is a website called bookdepository.com, which is I don't know if people realize it's basically it's Amazon. So, I, you know, as an author, I'd really rather people didn't shop at Amazon, <laughs> but sometimes I think it's the cheapest and the easiest way for everybody to access things. So, book depository sell, I have nothing to do with them, by the way. I'm not, this is not an advert. The only reason I recommend them is that they ship for free worldwide to any country. So, you can absolutely go in if you wanted the paperback, then you um, can grab it there and it will be sent to you for free. And I think actually, right now, that's the only way to get the paperback. Okay. Because I'm glad you say that because I had looked in Canada here and hadn't seen it out yet. So I was wondering what was happening on that regard. So the audiobook is imminent within the next couple of weeks um, if it's not already out by the time this airs. But yeah, paperback later this year or next or ship it from Book Depository if you can't wait for the paperback. And the other thing is, so the audiobook is the very first audiobook I have narrated so, you know, 11 books and I've always had a professional narrator and that was an experience. So for me, it's, it's the very first time people will hear me and I hope they like it. <laughs> I, I always like posh narrator that, you know, the, the very well-spoken English lady that narrated the rest of them. It's funny. I, um, I do the podcast. I've done courses that I have to narrate for people to listen to and I never listen. I can't no. actually go back. I've told my husband, if I were to ever go back and listen to myself, I'd never do another audio thing again. Yeah, That would no, be, yeah, done. So it's so kudos to you for having actually. <laughs> <laughs> Not a particularly nice accent, but it is authentic nevertheless. There you go. So <laughs> it's, uh, well, thank you so much once again for being on. This has been so lovely. And thank you for sharing your experiences for this book and all of it, because I do think, you know, all the families that started with you with baby calm, they're right in that age and can now kind of grow up with you exactly. in the same regard. Yeah. yeah. Growing it up together. Is. I kind of feel like it ever helped me to grow up as well as crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. I hope you found the advice and discussion helpful for your own journey parenting a tween or even just getting prepared to parent a tween. 
Just remember that we're all in this for the long haul, and so our goals have to be able to get through to that other side. Next week, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Amy Brown, who is a regular voice for support for breast or chest feeding families. With her awareness of all that families need and the entire lack of support for such families, we delve into the question of why we should care about breastfeeding or chest feeding grief and trauma. It's a hard topic, but someone has to talk about it. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.